Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 159, and today's guest name is Dwayne Smith. He is the CEO of True North Companies, which is one of the leading insurance and financial firms down in Iowa and across the Midwest. He and a couple partners merged three of their firms back in 2001. They were doing $9 million. And since then, they've grown to the point where they're going to hit $90 million or close to this year with almost 400 employees. And Dwayne's on the show today to describe how they've grown so fast and they've averaged 15% year over year growth with now 65 LLCs and 58 partners by building a perpetual legacy transition plan that is allowing high performers to get ownership equity in these different entities to continue to grow while having one of the most amazing cultures and best places to work. He's going to describe to us today on the show what their structured entrepreneurialism system is. It's essentially an operating system like you heard Jack Stack talking about the great game of business and all these different ways of building transparency, financial literacy, driving execution in the business. And I love how Dwayne says that we're all entrepreneurs and we all love great flashy things, but if we put some structure and some discipline behind this, we can really succeed at the game, which they have absolutely proven they can do while creating ridiculous amounts of legacy for the owners who are in the business. So there's four different areas that he discusses. One is how they're growing. The second one is their people. Fourth one is the client experience and operations. And then the fourth one is their finance and accounting and how they use their five key elements of success to implement all their strategies. So the first one is vision, then their leadership, and then the build, manage, and do. So it's essentially a way of getting stuff done and extremely effective. And the reason that I really liked this episode is because I heard Dwayne speak on a panel and it was him and his son and they were talking about the 65 LLCs and all the different ways that they're getting this transition plan and all these different owners involved. And I was like, why in God's name do you have all of this set up like this? And it sounds very complicated, but what was really special about this episode is that Dwayne is so calm and so relaxed because they're hitting their goals. They've got a plan in place. They're true north. 
has been so consistent since their six partners determined that it was to make a difference and create legacies back in 2001. And he could probably get an extreme premium for his company, but he is staying true with him and his culture and his employees and his other owners to what they believe. And they're helping make a difference and change lives. And there's so many ways that you can take away from this episode gold nuggets on growth and strategy and execution or transition ideas or just by listening to Dwayne that it's something to strive for to be like him because it's worth the hard work that he put in because of how relaxed and how much he and the different people in his company are enjoying life and business. Before I kick it off, remember there is a three-day Growth and Exit Bootcamp in Minneapolis on October 8th, 9th, and 10th. It's three days jam-packed full of our five principles on how to grow and exit your company, identify your valuation targets, identify all the different exit options, how to increase the value of your company, and how to hire your team of advisors. And we weave together two case studies entirely through these three days. And if you want the full agenda, go to arcona.io or click in the show notes to look at the three-day agenda. It's absolutely going to be a blast, a way that you can go to a safe place, ask all of the questions that you want to ask with no advisors, no family members or partners or employees there, and get control over your journey and over your business and clarity on how you're going to go get there. So without further ado, here is Dwayne Smith. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Dwayne, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm uh, excited to have you on the show. I was, uh, you know, for the listeners, we were just chatting. We uh, we had met at Entrefest, which is a cool organization that's down in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, that are helping entrepreneurs get out, get started. And you know, there was a bunch of different panels and events over like three days. And I and I actually saw uh, the co-founder Ben and Jerry speak there. And then I went over to your panel. And I think you're on a panel with a couple other family businesses and I was actually in the audience and I was just cracking up as I was listening to stories. And then your story intrigued me for a lot of different reasons. And I think we're going to be getting into that today because of the structure that you guys put together and the growth that you had and your, the, how you tied the legacy into all this stuff, Dwayne. So I'm excited to, to dive in, but maybe for the listeners that obviously don't have the background, just kind of give us a little bit of like, you know, Dwayne, how did you become an entrepreneur and how did you tie, like, what are some of the kind of the big milestones that got you where you are today? Well, I'll, I'll start back. Um, I started my insurance career up right out of college in uh, 1980 in uh, rural Iowa, actually started out in banking. And banking was fun until interest rates went to 18%. I was foreclosing on the people I'm going to church with. Sleepy little insurance agency in the corner. I said, you know, I think I'm going to focus more on the insurance field. So that's what I did. And uh, we had a total of two employees. Um, My high school football coach recruited me to Cedar Rapids in 1986. And I moved to Cedar Rapids to start a PNC shop to go along with his um, life insurance venture. Fast forward to uh, 2001, we'd grown to about 40 people, uh, a a smaller company with about 4 million of revenue. Um, I was uh, now CEO, COO, CFO, sales manager, sales (laughs) producer, you know the drill. Yeah, janitor, receptionist, yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) All the above. (laughs) 
and I wasn't good at any of them. <laughs> but I needed I needed to really find a way uh, to break through a ceiling of complexity. And two other business owners in town owned other insurance firms. And we got together and um, two of them didn't have perpetuation strategy. So I found a way to really scale what we were doing. Combined revenue went from 4 million to about 9 million, about 90 million in sales. And probably the best thing we did is we took about 90 days. We brought in a facilitator and we put together a detailed business plan. And the first thing that uh, the facilitator had us do was step back and and really articulate why are we doing this? We said, well, good question. We want to make a living. But he really <laughs> drilled deeper and he said, but how are you going to make a difference? And we looked at our industry and there was a lot of consolidation going on even back 20 years ago. And the private equity groups would write a decent sized check to a handful of owners. They'd build a very nice home in uh, Florida or Arizona. And then the rest of the employees are left to work for a Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. And we really had experienced a great entrepreneurial opportunity in our business. We could make a decent living. We could build equity. We could make a difference in our clients' lives and still have a quality of life that we could coach the baseball or the softball team with our family. So... Probably the best decision we made all the way back to 2001 was to really solidify our vision statement. And our vision statement is to build a legacy company with an entrepreneurial platform to attract, develop, and coordinate high-performing talent. That really has been our sound, unwavering, true north direction for the last 18 years. Which is super cool, Dwayne, because like, you know... You know, whether the whole Simon Sinek why, and I think it's even, you know, back in 2001, I mean, holy cow, were you guys ahead of the curve, <laughs> you know, like really putting your, putting your heart and soul back into it, you know, with your other partners, what would just, were, were they on the same page? Because I know like when you get to stuff like this, it kind of can be difficult to get, you know, people, people might say it, but they don't believe it. And especially over 18 years, I'm sure you've had that tested <laughs> to see what that really meant. I mean, what, have, were your other partners kind of in line with that too? You know, that's a great question. I think that's very important because we've ended up doing probably 20 plus acquisitions over the last 18 years. And the number one filter that we engage in up front is really the culture filter. And, you know, are these people a potential fit to our organization? Are are our values the same? And to some degree, I think early on in 2001, we were actually lucky. So there were six of us. And we were all on the same page. And that really helped in building an organization with a common focus. You know, a couple of our guiding principles all the way back to 2001, profitable revenue growth was was one of them. I'll tell you a little bit later, we forgot the profit part of revenue (laughs) growth. (laughs) Um, Even back then, um, culture was number two on our list. You know, quality of life. And that was really, to some degree, ahead of the curve. Now it's one of the areas that we define measure and manage. Number three, which also set us apart, and actually some of our 
our partners that were closer to retirement than I was. As a result of some of our previous partnerships, we had 78-year-old partners Mm -hmm. that wouldn't delinquish ownership, really stifled growth, had to okay the purchase of a new coffee machine. (laughs) (laughs) So, So we established one of the criteria, age 62, ownership and leadership has to start to transition. And I'll go into more detail on that later too, but that that's probably another one of, uh, of the best decisions that we made. And then the fourth was to develop a proprietary um, operating structure that we can hand off to the next generation. Well, it, it, I mean, what I find so intriguing, Dwayne, is how, I mean, you guys are pretty ahead of the curve because nowadays, like you, like you said, now quality of life, vision, the why from Simon Sinek, you got the operating structures like Traction, EOS, or like Rockefeller. I mean, all that stuff has kind of gotten into the mainstream, but like you guys are way ahead of that. And, you know, I think the biggest challenge that I see, and I can tell from the, the panel is people talk about this stuff, but they don't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a huge difference. And so like, as you guys created those, you know, those, um, the, the, the core values in your in your vision, like how did you guys maintain that, and what was the way that you guys were constantly using those to make decisions? Well, first of all, it wasn't a straight line. So, you know, we another thing I wish I would have had over the last twenty five to thirty years is an understanding that any organization evolves over time. So, my first company, four million in revenue. We were really a lifestyle company. We had to break through a ceiling of complexity. We hired a CFO after we merged. We hired a COO. We had a, hired a director of IT. We had to make those investments and really re-engineer how we did business. That got us then from that $9 million stage to about $25 million. But at that stage, we had another ceiling of complexity. And that was actually in about 2008. And we had grown the company from 9 million to about 27 million in revenue, tripled the size of the company. But that's when we did not follow our profitable revenue growth mantra. So we had revenue growth, but we had single digit profit. And at the same time, we had two of the senior partners that were nearing 62. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, our backs were up against the wall. If it wasn't for the commitment we had made seven years prior to right. internally perpetuate, mm-hmm. it would have been, quite frankly, a lot easier to call up a business broker and our accountant, dress up our financials, do a forward looking pro forma, and take a check. Right. I, well, and it's, it's interesting, Dwayne, but like on that note, specifically because I'm familiar with um, parts of your industry too, where like, you know, if you, depending on like how you're valuing the company, a couple of times revenue of the book, you know, of your, you know, of your, uh, um, on the insurance premiums, right? Or like in the finances, a couple of times, two, three times, whatever. I mean, like the way that I've always seen is these owners go, well, I, you know, after if I sold, then you pay down taxes and then you're like literally a year and a half or two years worth of income, you're like, might as well keep working. And they're like, there's this constant, like, Till the next thing you know, you're 85. <laughs> and That's so, right. <laughs> so it's, I think it's interesting that you guys threw down the 62 and, you know, maybe shed some light. Cause I, I, 
I have found that a lot of people in the mid-market private hood companies, entrepreneurs, they, they struggle with this whole difference between ownership and leadership. Maybe you want to give me your definition of that though, and then how you guys talked about that internally. Yeah, that's another good catch. And you know, a little bit of background. I've been somewhat of a serial entrepreneur. So in our insurance organization, I think I mentioned to you, we have a unique structure where we have now 65 separate LLCs <laughs> that really help dictate accountability and ownership. But in addition to that, I own a car dealership, a car wash. I've owned real estate companies, security companies, wellness companies, and a you know, just a vast variety of different organizations. And back to 2008, when we had a couple of partners that um, were looking at uh, retirement, at the same time, about half of those other businesses were bringing me a check every month. The other half were coming in and asking for a check. (laughs) (laughs) Just handing them off to people. They they come and hand them back. (laughs) And I thought, you know, what's going on? These half a dozen companies over here, I like it a lot better when they bring a check <laughs> and there's no noise. Right. It's another group, you know, somebody always ate my homework. I need more cash. So I stepped back and tried to analyze what are the attributes of the companies that are flourishing versus the ones that are not. And I actually, we came up with five key elements of success and their vision, lead, build, manage, and do. And if you have all five of those characteristics in your team, then it's almost like magic, how smooth things can work, how things can flow. But if you're missing any of those five, you better hesitate and back up and make sure you put your team together to really then be able to focus on success. So how did you guys come up with those five? And then maybe you want to give a little bit of insight into what they are. Sure. You know, that's a good question. And I, we built a lot of this from scratch. You know, it's a culmination from a lot of different books and good or bad. We didn't just find a business book, turn to chapter one and then chapter two and then chapter three. It's really been the school of hard knocks. Um, We actually have a new term for mistakes. We call them tuition payments. <laughs> I think we have our we have our PhD in many areas of tuition payments. You, uh, but, yeah. but <laughs> Do you have an investment ledger that shows how many? <laughs> yeah, you know, it 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 would be surprising. And you know, in, in one case, we spent over three million dollars in one endeavor, uh, making the same mistake sixteen times until we finally said enough is enough. <laughs> uh so I, I, I trust me I, I was about to go down a rabbit hole of all the yeah i got plenty of my tuition payments and they're far greater than my actual <laughs> tuition that i went through so sorry i i, I kind of gave you a segue segue there but into the five yep the five so you, you know obviously like coming up with them was like a school hard knocks with the tuition payments but you know what what is actually the components of each of those five and then how do you actually measure manage them Sure. Okay. So the first is vision, right? You need to really have a visionary that sees the unique opportunity that can set you apart and really um, come up with a 
um, solution to your client's problem. The second is leadership. And we define leadership as the ability to communicate the vision and instill confidence in others to follow. So you can have a visionary that's maybe not a leader. You can have a leader that's maybe not a visionary, but you have to be able to do both of those effectively. The third uh, build, I've sometimes um, also titled that architect. And for a, a quick start entrepreneur like me, uh, this was the area that I skipped past the most. So I'll come up with a great idea. You know, it's fire ready aim. And I can actually package the idea fairly well on a napkin illustration. But to build out a scalable process that then can be handed off to the manager, the manager then can work through the checklist to give to the doers to ensure that the job gets done properly. Those are the five elements of any endeavor to really start building an enterprise versus just a sole proprietorship. It, it, and it's very difficult, I think, a lot for kids. I don't know if you got the quick start from the Colby report, because that's definitely what I am. <laughs> it's like, how many ideas ready, set, go, and yeah. then... And then it gets to 70% and you're like, where can I, ha can I hand this off to someone? <laughs> and the, uh, you know, you had talked about, um, you know, as on the panel and also some prior conversations about, you know, packaging up your intellectual property and, it, and that has that, as that's part of your internal perpetu perpetuation. How do you guys do that? What are the ways that you guys are actually fostering that in the, the culture? Well, from a, an intellectual capital standpoint on how we run the business, Again, 2008 was kind of a watershed year because, as I mentioned, we tripled the size of our revenue, but we were very inefficient, single-digit profits. Uh, we had to step back and say, either we're going to take a check or we're going to fix it. So we took about two years. And, you know, as you recall, 2008 wasn't the best of economic times. But in that two-year period, we went from 220 to 133 people. Oh my gosh. With the same amount of revenue. Wow. That's how inefficient we were. And we used the, the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, as somewhat of a format. But we again stepped back like we did in 2001 and we said, okay, what have we done right? What have we done wrong? And what we really established is that we didn't have an owner's manual. And really, the other realization was that a lot of people want to be an entrepreneur. And the word process was a four-letter word to me because it was bureaucratic and it was not entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. But I had to realize and do a 180 in that regard and realize that even high performers can perform at yet another level if they're given the right structure and amount of discipline mm -hmm. and our initial business plan and vision statement was attract high-performing talent we didn't have the development and the coordination of high-performing talent and we would hand out our business card we'd hand out our checkbook you want to be an entrepreneur here's your opportunity join true north well that only worked for about two out of 10 salespeople. 
So in 2008 is when we stepped back and said, we need to really provide direction and um, some semblance of structure, yet still remain entrepreneurial. So that's when we looked at General Motors, we looked at Sears, we looked at GE, we looked at all kinds of different companies, Apple, what made them successful? And even General Motors, when I'm growing up, were at the top of their game 30 years later going through bankruptcy. So we wanted to try to develop an operating system that could withstand that test of time. Here's what we came up with. It's called the Structured Entrepreneurial Platform. It's predicated upon four areas that we define, measure, and manage. The first one is fairly routine. Most companies have a profit loss, a monthly budget to forecast. They understand at least where their revenue is and where their expenses are. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of companies stop. <laughs> well, I would be, I would even say like, there's a lot of people that I know that that's one of their biggest weaknesses. You know, they're, they're driving, I mean, in my old industry was like unbelievably victim of that, Dwayne. Like, I mean, it was copiers and IT and, IT and office equipment. So it was like revenue, revenue, revenue. And no one ever talked about it. Are you actually making any money and like forecasting and budgeting? <laughs> it's amazing how many people don't do it. Well, and even to that expense, Ryan, I'm, I have a finance background, so there's no hiding in our company. I get um, 100 <laughs> P&Ls a month. Oh, my gosh. Budget to forecast. They're graded red, yellow, and green. We slice and dice based on production, by specialty. We aggregate locations. There's no hiding. And, you know, back to the adage, you can't manage what you don't measure. Mm -hmm. Measure everything we do. So then what's uh, number two and three then? Sorry, I, I well, took number two, three, and four that have to be in balance are client experience, people slash culture, and growth. So everybody in the firm gets a scorecard predicated upon those four. And everybody understands that profit can actually be too, be too high at the expense of culture, client experience, and growth. Mm -hmm. It can be too low at the expense of growth and others. We define, measure, and manage client experience. We have a series of about 25 different specialties. We do client surveys, net promoter scores. We also do a, a uh, retention analysis. On the people side, we do an internal survey, Trust and True North, and our growth goals are 15% year over year. That's and what are the what's what is interesting is I think that that's there's a a lot of commonalities too with these other operating systems and I you know it's the hardest part is that they can constantly measure it. Do you guys do like weekly meetings, quarterly? Like what are the ways that you're actually like getting everybody on page? Is you kind of have like the open book management? I just interviewed Jack Stack from the Great Game of Business and um, you know there's his was the whole open book management. But what are the ways that you're actually building the routine of like the communication of this? Sure. No, we're very transparent. And, you know, I, I believe in, you know, smaller uh, is more nimble. So right now we have four different divisions. The division presidents or EVPs are responsible for their scorecards in those four different areas. Each of those divisional EVPs then have practice leaders that are also bound by the same structure. 
and degree of accountability. The executive team meets monthly. Every other month we meet with these um, EVPs that are running the divisions. It has taken really the guesswork, quite frankly, of running our company because <laughs> these are the report cards you get back. Our goal is really to have a self-managed company. If you're not hitting these goals in these four critical indicators, what are you doing to improve those numbers? So don't come to the principal's office uh, with a blank scorecard or a blank plan to correct where you're heading, come with a plan. So mm -hmm. probably nine out of 10 times, these meetings are really reporting out results, asking for maybe some strategic input, but everybody understands what the, the markers are. Furthermore, that 15% growth, as you can imagine, and we're at about just shy of a billion now in gross sales, not about 90 million in, in commission dollars with about 400 people. Mm -hmm. it's, it's getting harder to keep that 15% growth number. I bet. Right. Last year, we grew more than what the firm had initially when we first started. But that also fosters a mindset of what we call permanent whitewater. You know, if you're a rafter, there's no real still uh, pond anywhere on our horizon. There's always these rapids that you're running through. And how are you getting better? How are you going to improve um, what value you're adding to your client? Mm -hmm. So what I find super interest, like super interesting, Dwayne, is that like, so Jack Stack in the Great Game of Business, he actually did a lot of this in different variations. Um, and he like ended up doing an ESOP. So the ownership mentality, they like, actually had ownership. So kind of like the, the, which I think that all the color you just gave was unbelievably important because so many times these employees, like to get them on board and to get everybody rolling in the same direction, people need the, like the markers. They need to be able to measure. They need to like understand the game. And most often like they don't know what they don't know. And then it's just all for the man. And they just... So I think you you do all the great things, but then it kind of goes back to the, then the technical back end of this. And how are you know what is the reward financially? So you got the why, and you got that going. But then you know why did you not do an ESOP? And to kind of go back to the ownership versus leadership and the sixty five LLCs. How does that whole infrastructure work tied to the transition? Because I think there's some like very unique things that you guys did versus doing like an ESOP or like something else that someone might do instead. Yeah, that's that's a good catch. You know, the one of the drawbacks to an ESOP, and in my mind, and I think there's a lot of positive attributes, but everybody then, to some degree, is treated on an equal basis. What we have done with our structured entrepreneurial model, if we have a high performer, we'll set up a new LLC, we'll allow them to own up to 25% of that profit center. We do a cost allocation for some of the shared services, and he or she then um, is in a mindset of ownership. And we provide a lot of the shared services with finance, marketing, legal, administration, but we allow then the creative people and the salespeople to really be innovative, close to the client needs, understanding the client needs, and then freeing up their mind to be able to focus on development of solutions for, for those problems. Hmm. Furthermore, if they're, if they're very entrepreneurial, they build a practice within our model 
say it's a specialty within construction or medical malpractice or employee benefits, if they can recruit others to their team, then we'll allow them to own part of the profit centers with additional people that they bring in. So some of the seasoned people on in the firm might have ownership in a dozen of these different LLCs. They've been able to attract high-performing talent, almost a, a pyramid structure, if you will, mm-hmm. that enables then the high performers to grow. Because I, I see at times, in some cases, Fortune 500 companies do a good job of taking the high performers and the low performers and bringing them all to kind of an equal level. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing for the low performers. For a lot of the high performers, though, it's stifling. Yeah, I could see that. Well, and it, what's interesting, so you have like essentially a bunch of mini entrepreneurs where like the, so the parent company owns the majority of the company, but then they're going in there and they're responsible for all their stuff and grow on their own. I mean, do you have like a set way of valuing these companies? And like, have you like kind of trained people about the actual equity and how that works? So, so many people just don't like, you know, so I, I mean, I don't know if you're see because, you know, finance as well as like people always gravitate towards, oh, this is what I you know made last year versus like, this is what actual value creation means. <laughs> so how are you like, well, how is the mindset and how are you guys teaching these people and, and dealing with the 65 LLCs in that, na- in that nature? Sure. Well, we actually have a finance 101 and a 102 um, program to help educate um, our owners on um, equity and value creation. Every year, we value each one of those 65 separate LLCs. And it's a pretty, we have a pretty modest internal valuation. Your multiples you were talking about earlier, it's one and a half times top line or six and a half times EBITDA. And we give them basically a benefit analysis that shows the growth that they've had in their income and also the growth that they've had in their equity Mm -hmm. uh, based on those valuations every year. And I think one of the the, uh, tricks of making all this work goes back to that 15% growth. You can do the quick math, you know, the rule of 72, if you grow at 15%, in less than five years, you double your asset. Mm-hmm. So we do get calls as we've talked from private equity and other aggregators that are looking for opportunities to grow and write us a check that's you know, several times our internal valuation. But we have actually a diagram, a spreadsheet that shows if you maintain that growth, and leave the equity in to continue to grow your comment earlier versus paying 30 or 40% of it to tax. Most high performers don't want to quote retire. Yep. Also don't want to be working for somebody directly. So we can prove that our model is a very high return over time. The piece that we need to continue to work through is however once you get to that 62 age yep then it would be beneficial to take a higher multiple because your earning capacity starts diminishing mm-hmm. so we're now developing a staggered buyout formula that for at least the high performers that have a certain maybe over 10 percent of ownership 
we'll do a multi-year buyout that ends up equating to a higher net present value multiple Mm -hmm. that is a win-win for both the buyer and the seller. That that makes a bunch of sense. And you know what's just on that note, because like all that stuff, Dwayne, is just like so like you and I can talk about it because we you know we kind of understand the underlying mechanisms of how this works. But like, you know, the quick and back of the napkin math that most of these entrepreneurs do is that they go, Well, I might as well just keep working because between income and growth and equity, and I just see this huge demographic cliff that's happening because people do this, but they don't get a plan like you to get out from underneath it. So then it's just like they run, 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 they wake up. The math is still the math. So then they put their head back down. They run, 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 wake up. And just like, like, what are you going to do? But you're still going to have the same exact situation. So there's no way that, you know, like the whole like uh, structured entrepreneurialism that you're talking about, they haven't gotten the foundation there to get out from underneath it, to be able to have that internal transition and to be able to attract the high performers. I mean, I don't know if you saw like how, you know, when you said that you weren't attracting those high performers and you're only getting two out of the 10, like, a lot of the clients that I work with and the people that I talk to and after doing these keynotes is like, they can't find that next gen leadership to actually hand the baton off to because of all these different dynamics. So they don't have enough growth or whatever it is. So, I mean, it's a, it's just a, it's interesting. I don't know if you got any comments on that because it's just more of a, maybe just a, a statement, but I. No, I, I, I think that's a good observation. And, and really going back to day number one, building the environment in totality that can attract and retain high performers. That's really part of what's been our unwavering direction as well. We've we've really never lost a high performing talent. We've helped people transition, we've helped people find other positions, but if you really have a true high performer, we challenge our executive team to build around those four critical indicators, mm-hmm. high, high compensation programs, high investments in client experience, a culture that's second to none, and then a mindset of growth that is exciting and people want to embrace. They want to be a part of a winning team. So I think number one is building an organization that's really focused on attracting, retaining, and coordinating high-performing talent. Number two, the adage, what's the best day to plant a tree? Yeah. Yep, or 30 years. The best day to understand (laughs) your perpetuation strategy, if you don't already have it figured out, is today. What do you think think most people's challenges, Dwayne, is from why they don't do that? I mean, like, is there a reason that you've talked through other friends and entrepreneurs of yourself that, like, is it, like, what do you see? Is there any common themes of why people don't do that? I think we, as entrepreneurs, we get so wrapped up in the day to day. And also, in a lot of entrepreneurial companies, you can't really distinguish between your personal and your professional life, <laughs> yep. right? What this has forced me to do, and really the other partners um, that have transitioned, you know, at 62, you're handing off the reins. Now, that doesn't mean you have to, quote, retire. And we've had some partners that are still engaged at 70 but they transitioned their ownership and their leadership, but they're still mentoring, still adding value in different capacities. Mm -hmm. But to perpetuate internally, there's really, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. There are only two main characteristics. One, you need the cash flow to write the check internally. We didn't have that for a while until we fixed our operating model. 
Secondarily, you have to have the structure to hand off the intellectual capital. So that's the other thing that's missing is what we built. And I'm handing off the reins actually to my son. I'm lucky. He decided to go into this business when he was chauffeuring me around in the summers at 16, believe it or not. And he's going to take over. He's taken over for pre- as president the last two years. He'll take over as CEO in January. I'll move to chairman. With this structure, I have no qualms and or anxiety about him running the company because there's a method and an owner's manual that goes with the challenge that if they stay committed to what we built, and quite frankly, my goal is to be able to be chairman from a beach someplace. (laughs) <laughs> Why not, right? <laughs> Especially in January in Iowa. Right, right. Well, and I got to think, Dwayne, you know what, what? I can sense it in your voice and that the, what's the quote where like the freedom that comes with discipline, you know, where we're like, I can, you know, there's less anxiety because the rules are transparent and written and everybody kind of knows what it is. So you can actually focus on the hard stuff instead of having to, have so many things that are unsaid that people end up, you know, filling the voids with their own garbage. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, that was a big tuition payment. That was probably in that three to five million plus range in tuition because I thought entrepreneurs didn't need systems and structure and discipline. They just figure it out. But <laughs> That was erroneous. Incorrect. Correct. Yeah. Everybody operates much better with the right degree. That's why we've termed this, though, structured entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. We still still want to maintain some degree of flexibility and innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're exactly right. Probably one of my biggest mistakes is not having enough definition. We just had an owner's meeting last week where we've had 350 of our employees come in for the two or three days. And we talk about the first six months of the year. We talk about future planning. And the number one takeaway from feedback was we just want more definition. So we want more black and white. And that was reassuring because I haven't always operated with that type of mentality. Yeah, it is. It, it, I, I heard a great quote at one point where like, you know, if, if you don't tell people things, I mean, they fill in the, and it's usually worse, like what's happening. And, you know, then the corporate politics, you know, start to surface and everything. And, you know, it just, so you're better off constantly, you know, giving more openness because then it's less, <laughs> less confusing. How, how was that, Dwayne? Is you, I mean, 20 acquisitions. Um, and, you know, especially when you're talking people, I mean, I went through it. I have hundreds of podcast guests that have gone through it and culture. I mean, you know, a PL is a PL and a cash flow statement is a cash flow statement. But like when you throw people on there that are creating those results, the whole thing turns into something different, right? It's an organism. How did you guys find these? What were, what were your some big insights and takeaways that you learned after 20 acquisitions? Oh, yeah, I have a whole nother chapter of <laughs> there. Now, the, the first thing I would say, um, as I mentioned earlier, the first builder is culture. And 
what we normally do, we'll have dinner with a potential acquisition or merger candidate, and we'll come back with the executive team and we'll ask the question, would you like to have dinner with that group again? And every time we've gone against our intuition in that regard, guess what? Yeah, I bet. It really didn't work. It, and if if it did work, we really had to end up turning everything upside down to make it work. So rule number one, filter on acquisitions is is the culture. And was there anything else besides dinner? I mean, like, I mean, it was personality tests or just gut instinct and like that that's the first. Then we go into some of the personality testing mm-hmm. and and also references. Mm-hmm. Six degrees of separation. Everybody in your industry knows the the various leaders. So informally, you can get a lot of information and you have NDAs, but there's there's information that you can really get. What are the true colors here? Mm-hmm. I'd say that's number two. And then spend time with them. A lot of times, um, you know, we'll golf, we'll go fishing, we'll go hunting uh, before we decide on a, at least a larger opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, partner. Yep. And on that, that, that verbiage that you chose partner, did you like, was there different unique structures that you guys did as you were acquiring these companies that like, kind of layered them into your LLC structure? And I mean, what was it like, would you kind of doing like the bolt-ons like that? Yeah. What sets us apart in a lot of the M&A activity today, that LLC structure that we identified We'll go into Denver, Dallas, Chicago, different marketplace. We'll find the entrepreneur that has built his or her independent insurance agency. It's been their lifestyle company, that personal professional identity that they've had. They maybe have 25 or 30 people. They also might have a 25 and a 35-year-old that they'd like to see have that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. They're interested in getting a fair price for it, but not the you know sky-high multiple. We'll come in. We'll write the check. We'll then allow those younger people to own up to 25% of that LLC on a local basis. Mm-hmm. The owner then gets to perpetuate his or her legacy gets to offer that opportunity to these younger members. And then ideally the sellers is still on the, on the board for the next year or two. Mm -hmm. That's really one way we do it. The second thing we identified, and and part of this is just going through the tuition payments. (laughs) Um, We bought some smaller agencies in smaller communities, more like Mayberry. Mm-hmm. And in Mayberry, they're not as interested about the larger organizations and a True North banner on the front door. They're buying their insurance products from the local agent. And it might be ABC Incorporated or yep. Smith Insurance. In those cases, we've done about 10 acquisitions in that space in the last 18 months. We leave the brand alone. So we'll come in, we'll do a discovery, we'll make sure that the finance and accounting and some of the of the operation pieces are intact, but then we'll leave the brand, the Main Street brand, and we'll bring in the additional market clout and other services that we bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all I can all I can think of is doing so. My buddy, um, he's now on the lending side of Farm Credit Services America, but like he was on the insurance side. He's got a big farm down in Storm Lake, and 
He's like, oh, yeah, I was out uh, delivering bag lunches to combines. And so, like, I can just only imagine these smaller communities where it's just all about the people <laughs> that, they're, that they're already interacting with. <laughs> then the other thing I'd throw out, Ryan, in the M&A space, about five years ago, we were doing M&A. But actually, I was doing that in my spare time when I'm trying to run the company. We hired an individual from our industry that was a marketing rep. Mm-hmm to all of the agents and uh, firms uh, within the Midwest to focus on really finding these opportunities yeah. and communicating how we are different. Yep. That's, that's really doubled our activity in the last number of years. In this first main opportunity space, he now has 15 prospects. We just closed, we'll close two more tomorrow. That's he has crazy. a list of 15 we can be really very selective when we have that kind of a pipeline and we'll probably close another four or five of those before the end of the year. I wouldn't, I mean, is that part of your 15% growth strategy now? I mean, I, I can only imagine when that's just going to pick up with all the boomers that are trying to retire and how many of these little shops are around. You know, unfortunately we're messing up our 15% growth because we're at 22. <laughs> oh, bummer. <laughs> yeah. That's, that I mean, and now do you do you break that out between organic and inorganic? Sure. Yeah. You know, with this um, M and A activity, uh, we're sitting at about a seven percent growth rate, mm-hmm. uh, but the organic, um, you know, is in that fourteen to fifteen percent range. So I'm super curious, Dwayne. You know, when you, I mean, going back to like the inception of all this, like, what do you like? pinpoint your desire for culture and legacy and the people too. I mean, like, you know, there's certain people, I just did a keynote and the guy goes, I don't care if I fire everybody. I just want 50 million. You know what I mean? So there's a huge spectrum of owners that are out there. And a lot of the founders, I think maybe gravitate more towards yours, but like with your huge deep passion of this perpetuation and leadership and all that stuff, what, what do you, what do you contribute it to? That's a good question. I think, well, probably to give you an example, in high school, I weighed 165 pounds and I was on the offensive line in my high school football team. <laughs> That's literally, I was 170 and I was uh, right guard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, so I've always been a team player. Now, I also like to play defensive end, so you're kind of out there in the open. But I think I enjoy so much seeing other people win but I also have kind of a, a meter of fairness. Um, if you know, if I can make a nickel and somebody else can make a quarter, I'm okay with that as long as there ends up being a lot of nickels. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the other thing I'd throw out is really a high degree of empathy. Sometimes that works to your advantage. Sometimes it can actually be a detriment back to laying people off. Probably the toughest time for me was when we went from 220 to 133 people. Oh my gosh, I bet. And we didn't have a Black Friday, but we helped all those individuals find other opportunities, some mm-hmm. within our business, some outside of our business. And it took me a long time to realize that I wasn't doing any of them a favor. If they weren't really highly productive, they weren't happy, the firm wasn't happy, how do you help them find another opportunity that they can be passionate about? Mm-hmm. 
No, I, I think that's very well said. And have, like, have you like had any interactions? I can only imagine that over the years, as you guys are just killing it, that like, you know, cause especially with all of the PE money that's sitting on the sidelines right now and people are overpaying and, you know, big corporations have undeployed capital. Have you had any interactions where like, I'm, I, I know you get knocks on the door cause a lot of people do, right? And most people do. And then, but like where the number is so ridiculous, like you've been doing this long enough where it's probably cemented in your DNA at this point. Have you seen anybody else on your team or people coming up where there's been kind of some pivotal moments where like you have to explain to them that that's never going to happen? I mean, like how, is there been ever kind of cases like that? You know, so far, um, we haven't really experienced that. We have our executive team right now has the majority ownership in all of these separate LLCs. I'm next to transition. Uh, the next event will probably be seven years later with about 10% interest. And keep in mind, they end up owning fractions of all these separate LLCs. Mm-hmm. So the other benefit to that is that you can really then establish the buyers that are adding value to those LLCs instead of just bringing somebody in and here's your stock certificate. Mm-hmm. Handpick Sally or Joe or John that's been working in this practice or division, putting in the hard work and effort, allowing them to buy that equity, not oh. just a, a stock certificate. Yeah, interesting. So you like you're like handing. I mean, so you're not handing it directly to your son the ownership. You're you do, you're handing your son the leadership, but you could be like literally divvying up your ownership as you see fit. Exactly. You know, wow, that's got to be a job and a fun exercise in itself. Um, you know, it's not as as complicated as you would no. think. No, and in my case, we're actually we've structured a ten year buyout, so I'm I'm really selling ten percent a year over the next ten years. Mm-hmm. But that really does allow for a structure that really requires the buyer to add value to that equation. Otherwise, they're not invited to the ownership table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. You know, have you, you know, going kind of going back to the whole theme of leadership versus ownership? I mean, is it, did people, you know, have a definition of that internally in your culture where like they understand that there's numbers and like there's equity, what they are worth and how it, how it works versus their day to day job? I mean, like I, there's a lot of people that just struggle immensely with that. Yeah, we do. And we actually have a document, Path to Ownership, that really attempts to define what mm-hmm. it takes. And in, in most of the cases, our ownership is aligned in a sales capacity. But as we continue to grow, we realize that there are a lot of additional positions, our CFO, our general counsel, some of our very talented account managers and account executives that add value that without them, we couldn't continue to grow. So we've actually established what we call a common fund that we allow then, it's somewhat of a modified version of ESOP, that we allow those individual employees the opportunity to also have ownership that we finance internally Hmm. um, through the firm. Super cool. You know, it's, it's just, it has, it's a lot to be said about having everybody on the same page. <laughs> you know, it's like the, having the team that all of everybody understands what game you're playing. <laughs> so many times I see like 
you know, one lesson there too, Ryan, uh, you, you're not always going to bat a thousand in that arena, mm-hmm. but our operating system, those four critical indicators, and especially the cultural measurement, we've actually helped probably a half a dozen owner partners transition to other opportunities in the last 18 months, hmm. primarily because the cult, they didn't end up fitting the culture values. Uh. But when you have that feedback and it's candid and you sit down with them and you can have a candid conversation, I'm not saying that your values are right, ours are wrong or vice versa. I'm just saying that there's not a match. Right. You're not happy. People around you are not happy. How do we fix this? And either you go through uh, additional uh, talent development and see if we can make a difference or we'll either write you a check for your interest or you write us a check. Let's talk about how we can move forward. How are you, which I think is, you know, the, the really hard and one of the best, most productive things that I see people do is Ray Dalio does this whole radical transparency and radical truthfulness. I just love it. And it's, and it does get to the, the core of the problems and everybody can actually progress as people together. But how are you getting and that tangible feedback, Dwayne? Like, like, how are you measuring that versus just, he said, she said, you've got gut instincts or, I mean, is there like tangible ways that you're identifying these, the, the, the feedback? There is. And actually, it's a survey, internal survey that we've developed, and it's Trust and True North. And we have this conversation with our people. We want you to be candid and don't worry about a reprimand from your supervisor if you're candid with these feed, this feedback. Because if you don't give us candid feedback, it's not going to improve. Mm-hmm. So, And it doesn't matter if it's the CEO or if it's the front desk. We want that kind of candor. We also, in some cases, go out to our market partners to ask for feedback. How, how are you being treated by employees or partners of True North? That's so cool. So we gather that information. And what it also does to the leadership group, it backs you in a corner. And at <laughs> times, I'll be engaged with a leader that, you know, is in perfect behavior in front of me. But when I get a report back, I don't trust this individual. He or she's not a leader. I'm not sure I am going to stay with firm. I'm in a position that I have to really look into that, have those candid conversations with both parties and fix it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, you know, it's gotta be, do you have lead, you know, you got the finance, finance 101 and 102. Do you have like a leadership? Cause these are hard conversations, which I think I'm a huge fan of, but like they're hard conversations and it's hard to, it's hard practice to get to be able to do that. <laughs> it is. And back to our leadership development, actually my son three years ago developed a program that he's termed lead ahead. So every year we have a new class of about eight to 10 individuals and it's an ongoing class but we add another eight to 10 people in, you know, a freshman, sophomore, junior progression years. We have a facilitator that comes in and we have developed a curriculum and probably the biggest threat long-term, the finance piece, you can teach that. It's, it's really a numerical measurement. Client experience, you know, you have to really continue to really focus on innovation and solving problems. 
it's the culture piece that long-term we need to make sure we maintain and don't lose this mentality that we've built in this culture of one true north and, and a team environment. So we're really working hard on continued development. Mm-hmm. We're actually building out True North University. Oh, cool. That's At 400 awesome. people, we had a lot of training. We had a lot of development. It was scattered all across different offices. We're now bringing um, an individual in to really head up our training and talent development initiatives. And it'll take a while to get all that put together, but it will be a combination of both internal and external programs that similar to a syllabus when you're in college, you want to major in um, finance. Here's the path to get there. You think you got a lot of good feedback that people are, are like yearning for education like that? Definitely. Definitely. This has been a lot of fun, Dwayne. I, I mean, you guys, it's just, I appreciate the time. You guys have really kind of, you know, let's put it this way. You guys are, you're sharing your tuition payments with our listeners. <laughs> and so like, hopefully we can save them some of their own tuition payments and they can learn from your guys' uh, school of uh, hard knocks. But you guys have really done a good job. And it's fun to hear that the leadership and the stuff that's out there. And if you were to, you know, we covered some good ground. I mean, is there, you know, for someone that's, kind of looking up for the first time going, okay, where do I start? You know, what would maybe be your one, your one easy actionable thing that they, they can put, put them in the right direction? Wow. Um, you know, it, it depends at different sizes. And I actually have an illustration that talks about various ceilings of complexities, but I think one, the one action item I would probably throw out there is to, Find a good mentor. Mm-hmm. So find somebody that has paid some of those tuition payments um, that you can trust and really have candid conversations about if you had utopia, what would it look like? Mm-hmm. That's a, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then help them like, like yeah. actually visualize it. <laughs> yeah. And then that person, whether that person's actually the one that can help will build out back to those five key elements. Mm-hmm. Most entrepreneurs are very good visionaries. Some of them are good at packaging the visionaries. Some are not. I think number two would be go back to that vision, lead, build, manage, and do. Do that quick assessment on your team. What are the attributes of your, of your team members and who are you missing? And how do you backfill to any of those positions, mm-hmm. especially one, two, and three? If our listeners want to get more of this, want to you know reach out, like you know dive into True North, what, what are, what's the best way to get in touch with you or your uh, materials? Yeah, our website, truenorthcompanies.com. My information's out there. I, I love to share our tuition payments, so I'd be glad to share any of this information. We've actually packaged the, the table of contents to the owner's manual I was talking about. We're working with probably 15 to 20 of our clients. Oh, cool. They're actually branding the, the model that fits their industry specifically. That's super cool. Well, we'll, we'll link to all that in the show notes. And Dwayne, it was absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dwayne. Man, I'll tell you what. 
listening to all the hard work he put in, but yet how relaxed and how comfortable and confident he is with where they're going just seems like it's totally worth all the hard work. So if there's a big takeaway is trying to determine what you want and why is obviously the most important part. What are the targets and strategies that you're trying to execute? And then how do you consistently execute on that in the day-to-day -day of the business and build a culture that wraps around all that, that glues it all together of high performers and highly positive and motivated people, it sounds like it's a blast and it's totally worth, the, totally worth the work and the effort. If you want to figure out where you're going and why, attend our Minneapolis boot camp on 8th, 9th, and 10th of October. The show notes will have the link to the full agenda, but it's essentially a crash course on mergers and acquisitions. How do you increase the value of your company, hire a team of advisors to optimize the entire outcome, and an entire process around how to do this so it's not that complicated, but you get all of the control because you have the education about how this all fits together, and you have your target on where you're trying to march towards and why. And it's a safe place where you don't have a bunch of people begging you for different answers because they've got a stake in pushing you one direction or the other. Totally worth it. You got questions, reach out to me and my team at arcona.io. Happy to chat with you. If you and a partner want to come, we do offer a discount for the partnership, uh, the second ticket. So reach out. Otherwise, I will see you next week.